0: Let's get ready uh, to continue our study in the Pentecostal handbook in Acts chapter 19 with our visionary leader and pastor, Joe Wairostek. All right. Man, if you guys are ready for the spring quarter, can I hear, and I'm ready. ready. Amen, amen. Uh, just to let you guys know who are new. I am holding a microphone for a reason because we are live right now. But I turned off the house speakers because we don't need them. But we are live on the SUM Facebook page, and the notes are always on the Metro Praise page. Okay, and I can start posting them there at the SUM page as well. And it's uh, SUM Metro Praise cohort is the Facebook page we're live on, and then MPIChurch.org right there on our sound booth. If you guys ever forget it, you guys can get the notes for today. So we're in Acts 19. We started at the beginning of year in Acts 1. We're getting along pretty good. Amen? You guys have been faithful to read the Word of God with me every week as we've joined together, and today is one of the most exciting chapters, so let's just get right into it. Uh, an introduction to the chapter here is, uh, as we call the book of Acts, the Pentecostal handbook, because it's a book written by Pentecostals for Pentecostals. Amen? So the book of Acts is named that in church history, so we have the right to call it what we want to as well. There's nothing sacred about Acts in the name when Paul uh When Luke penned it, he didn't put the book of Acts. So it's just a name that was given so we can call it what we want. I like to call it the the Pentecostal handbook. But uh, you'll probably look at me weird and almost think I'm blaspheming, so I won't call it that all the time. Maybe just an inside joke for us. Uh, But the Pentecostal handbook today teaches us the pattern, once again, we've seen it before, of revival and riot. Everybody say revival and riot. Thank you. Oftentimes when the Pentecostal movement comes, we see revival. We see the good things. We see exciting times. But we also see riot. You'll see that today as well. And it's going to be in the great Roman city of Ephesus. Ephesus is important to us right now in the church because I'm in a two-year series going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. And as I mentioned yesterday, today we're going to be talking about Paul's journey to Ephesus. So if you want to join us as well uh, from whatever ministry you may be joining online or those here, because I know we have people tune in from the other cohorts. You can go to the Facebook page of our church or to the website or app as well. We have an app, and it has all the goodies there. You can keep up with us on the Ephesians series. So we're going to learn about how Paul started his ministry there in Ephesus. It's a Roman city. And let me just say this now. It's going to come up that Roman cities are generally taken over. uh, They have taken over Greek cities, okay? So we're going to see a lot of Greek history now um, into the Roman culture. So this is the way it was said is that Rome conquered Greece militarily, but Greece conquered Rome culturally, and you'll see a lot of that today when we go into their, into their goddess. Uh, Diana, also known as Artemis, and that's why you're gonna know there's two names, Artemis and Diana, because one's Roman and one is Greek, and the Romans just kind of uh, synchronized their gods on top of the Greek gods. Okay, so there was citywide transformation in Ephesus. It's actually the, Paul, the place where Paul spends the longest time in the book of Acts, other than when he goes to jail. Uh, this is where he's gonna spend the longest amount of time, two and a half years, uh, close to three years he's going to be here. The second large city that he was in was, was the second largest amount of time, which is Corinth. So we notice that not only is uh, the book of Acts a Pentecostal book, it doesn't really fit into the Baptist theology, as I was talking to my friend. It doesn't fit into Moody theology, though there's Orthodox Christianity that we share with the Baptists, with the Presbyterians, etc. But what we see is that this is dynamically a Pentecostal book. We're going to see that here, and it's also an urban book book. It's an urban ministry book. So we could call it the Pentecostal Urban Handbook to Ministry. But then you would say, that's too long, It's we going to call it Acts, right? Pastor, I like it shorter with Acts. But the idea is, it is is it it is Pentecostal. No way around it. starts off in Acts chapter 1. You're going to get the boom shakalaka power of God. Acts chapter 2, they receive it. Church gets birth, never stops moving. It keeps going. The Holy Ghost, not just calling him an it, but it being the revival, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit keeps coming. And what we notice is it's always centering around cities. They're going to urban metropolitan areas and spreading out. So when we typically see the church today being rural and suburban, that's not the book of Acts. And when we see it typically being evangelical, non-Pentecostal, like in America, a lot of the popular speakers are not Pentecostal in focus, not the book of Acts. So if you want to do urban ministry and Pentecostal ministry, can I get an amen? You're going to find yourself today in chapter 19. So there's citywide transformation, pagans getting uh, angry. That's where the revival revival turns into riot, then they try to stop the Christian movement, which we've already dealt with in previous chapters, but the gospel train keeps going, and the church continues to grow. Let's look at Acts 19, verse 1 in IV says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So let's take it on uh, passage by passage here. Verse 1 says, he arrives in Ephesus. Now any one of your study Bibles will have this, and this came from one of my study Bibles. It's just an outline of what the city uh, looked like. So it had a waterway here, and that's kind of uh, what made these cities big at that time was the ports. Uh, Corinth was a port city as well, and it made it really easy for Paul to travel and get around to these places, and that made the cities big as well. And uh, we see that they had a gymnasium, so uh, uh, they, they, The Roman people culturally were very sophisticated. They even had hot water baths, uh, which we'll see here. The baths were very important to their culture, but it was also very perverse there. You could get your prostitutes there. You could have homosexual sex there, very perverse, uh, but the baths and the gymnasium was a part of their way of life, similar to how we would think of a, 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 an idea of going to a gym, and uh, I guess going to the gym and going to Vegas at the same time would kind of be what's going on here, uh, you know, that kind of perversion. Then they had a theater. They loved their entertainment and their theater is—I'll show you in just a little bit—they say could could hold upwards of uh, ten thousand people. Huge theater, quote unquote, stadium too, right? It could also be served as other things. But they loved their entertainment, and then uh, they had one of the wonders of the ancient world—the Temple of Artemis. Okay, so let's talk about that just in a bit. But well, let me show you how big that theater is. Huge. Okay, so when we're talking about Paul showing up to a city like this, this is a big. Deal. Uh, the Christians are, uh, you know, just a small minority at this time. Now, we know eventually Christianity brings the Roman Empire to its knees and sadly over time becomes corrupt with the Roman Catholic Church. But we know at this point they are a small minority. And so coming to a massive city of tens and tens of thousands, possibly over a hundred thousand, uh, would just be intimidating to anybody. But God was with the apostles and God was working with them. And as we'll see, one of Paul's uh, main ways of preaching the gospel was to start off in the synagogue because that's where Jesus commanded them to go first. to The Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And what we will see is that, uh, or what we did see rather in the previous chapter, is that the Jews were being dispersed out of Rome and they were being dispersed out of the capital cities of the Roman Empire and and they were suffering persecution. So some of these uh, surrounding other cities were starting to get larger populations of Jews and then eventually they would drive them out of there and then they would drive them out of their own uh, capital city in Jerusalem in 70 AD and actually take them as slaves across the ships back to Egypt. They would actually do that. And that actually happened. I know the black Hebrew Israelites tried to say that they came on ships. They're the true Israelites. And they came back over here to, they came over to America. But that's not the prophecy of Jeremiah 28. The prophecy of Jeremiah 28 is that they'll go right back to Egypt. So you cannot take Egypt and make it spiritual, but make the slave ships literal. If you're going to make the slave ships literal, then you got to keep Egypt as being literal. And so what happened was, what do you do with all these Jews? At 70 AD, at the destruction, you take them and you send them somewhere else. And that's what the Roman Empire did is they shipped them them off back to Egypt. That's an important thing to know because as urban ministers, we meet the black Hebrew Israelites, and they're wrong in their doctrine of God, and they're wrong in their doctrine of identity, though we've talked here before that there were people of color in the Jewish faith. uh, They definitely didn't look like me. They were you know, Middle Eastern, and then you know, just Moses right off the beginning married an Ethiopian, you know what I'm saying? So right there, there was already cultural mix, and then we know that uh, from uh, even Solomon's time that there was an uh, Ethiopian relationship there with the Queen of Sheba, and even to this day, there are Ethiopian Jews. Can I get an amen? Multicultural as well, so we could say urban, multicultural, Pentecostal. So here's a picture there of uh, Ephesus. Now, here uh, is what this seventh wonder, uh, they called here one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the uh, temple of Artemis, which would be the Roman goddess Diana. So Artemis is the Greek name for this female goddess, and then Diana would be the Roman name. So so the Greeks have this going on, and they're worshiping this goddess. The Romans come and say, we like your goddess. We're just going to change your name to our name. And that's a lot of what they did was change the Greek gods to Roman gods. But this thing was huge. It was massive it um, was considered a cult and that was because it was like a subdivision of their main religion and so uh, even still to this day uh, Hinduism would be similar to our understanding of the Greek Roman pagan world and so Hinduism has like a general view of their gods and then they have what's called like cultic worship of these minor gods and some people just get devoted to that one minor god and then they go like way over the top and so that's what would consider it to be a cult so for the Roman people this was a cult but not a bad thing, it was just a group of people who found one of the gods and said we're going to make that god the greatest thing in the entire world, okay, so that's what it means here when it says the cult was adopted by the the conquering Alexander the, the great of Greece and renamed Artemis by the Romans okay, so that's a little bit of the history, you know me, I could be uh, here all day with you, trying to talk about these things, learning with you. It's not necessarily my strong point, but this just gives you an overall view, again, of the third missionary journey. We're right here at Ephesus, right there is that port, that port city. As we see, there's a waterway that comes right into it, okay? So there, we're here with Paul in Ephesus, and then he's going to spend about two and a half years there, and then he's going to go around and come back and go to Jerusalem, get arrested, and then he's going to appeal to Caesar and go to Rome. Okay. Now the next thing that we want to see here—that was just verse one. Come on, somebody, you learning today? That was just verse one. That was Ephesus. Now we see that he found some disciples. Now at this point, we got to ask ourselves the question: Who? Who are these disciples? Are they, quote-unquote, saved, regenerated? I believe that they are, okay? Now, here's, here's how I understand this. When we go back to the passage of Apollos here, and I have it marked down here uh, in, in the reference here, Acts 18.25 to the last chapter, we see that Apollos was a disciple of Jesus, but he only knew of John's Baptism. Okay, so this was a unique kind of person that lived at that time, and they were kind of stuck between the two uh, covenants. But let me let me show you here with Apollos. Okay, so Apollos is who they have they've met in. Um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila met him here in Corinth, and it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only of the baptism of John. Okay, are you tracking with me? So, so now watch this. There's, there's three different kinds of people we meet in the Book of Acts, and we got to kind of, uh, you know, decide what are these guys here. Okay, are they the people who are now? Born-again Christians who now have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and now know about the new covenant. Are they just, you know, like the typical disciples? Are they that, number one? Are they, number two, God-fearers who are Jews that, uh, excuse me, converts to Judaism from pagan background? That's what we hear a lot about, you know, like Cornelius, right? A god fear, but all they know is Judaism And so now they need to be told the whole story of the new covenant, or are they, like Apollos, disciples of Jesus, number three, but haven't yet been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues, because they probably heard Jesus in his three years of ministry, received the baptism that he told them to get, which was John's baptism, that was the baptism he got, and then they go away back to their town, and now they're stuck in the middle. Does everybody get that third category? It's a unique category. It's the category of Apollos, as we just read in Acts 18. He knows Jesus. He knows Jesus. He, he's down with Jesus. He's even preaching Jesus Jesus. But he doesn't know about the baptism that Jesus now gave to initiate the new covenant, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And he certainly doesn't know about the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which Jesus gave after the Great Commission before he ascended, right? In Acts chapter 1, right? So they don't know about that, but they know Jesus, okay? Now, this is important to know because we believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary experience for the believer for the believer. So this is why I believe these are disciples of Jesus, not disciples of John who have not yet heard of Jesus waiting for the teachings of Jesus and need to get everything else following. No, these are actually disciples of Jesus. That's why it doesn't say disciples of John. It says disciples, ends right there. That's Luke's way of telling us they are just like Apollos in the previous chapter. Same author, are you guys tracking with me? But here's the deal they haven't been water baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, nor have they been filled with the Holy Ghost. Why is this important? Because this is probably the closest thing to a Baptist you would find in the New Testament. These guys are saying, we know Jesus. We love Jesus. And after Jesus was resurrected, I believe those people became regenerated by the Spirit. They didn't have to be born again again. When Jesus breathed onto the disciples at the end of the book of John and said, receive the Holy Spirit, I believe that was for the ministry now of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and to make us new. So all of those who had been previously disciples of Jesus, just like Apollos, they were regenerated. They were regenerated. The oneness Pentecostal wants to say they weren't regenerated because they want to say, oh, uh, we agree with you guys and it go against the Baptist saying we need to get filled with the Holy Ghost. But see, then they, they they equate being filled with the Holy Ghost with being saved. That unless you speak in other tongues, you're not saved. You haven't received the Holy Ghost. But the Holy Spirit has a twofold work in our life. We are to be born of the Spirit and to be filled with. The Spirit. And Acts chapter 1, nothing of the Spirit is for their regeneration. Everything in Acts chapter 1 is the Spirit is coming to baptize you with power. I, you know, John baptized you with water. I'll baptize you with fire. When the gift of the Father comes, the promised Holy Spirit, you shall receive power. And then in Acts chapter 2, they receive it. Nothing of salvation. Nothing of regeneration. Why? Because those boys were already born again. When were they born again? At the end of John. So if you put it chronologically, they're already born again, just like a Baptist would be born again, but yet they haven't received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Now, if the Baptist tries to say that this is not that, then I I, I set down the mic and I say, then tell me what in the world is going on? How many times do we need to have the Holy Spirit poured out then? Because he's poured out on the day of Acts, and they say that was for regeneration. Now he's going to make everybody be born of the Spirit. But then why does he get poured out in Cornelius' house? And then they try to be slick and go, well, uh, the, the Acts chapter 2 was the Jewish Pentecost, and then now in Cornelius' house, that's the pagan Gentile Pentecost, so they need to have their little moment. Well, then what's up here in Acts 19? Is there just an everybody else Pentecost now? It makes no sense. They're trying to trish the scripture, eisegesis, and make it say what they want it to say instead of exegeting it. The Holy Spirit is in these people. They are disciples. But they do not understand that there is now an expression of the Holy Spirit now coming from from the disciples that they're supposed to have us speaking other tongues and having power. How do I know? Because when they answer, no, we didn't even know there's a Holy Spirit, that means they didn't know of John 14, 15, and 16. They didn't know the teachings of the Comforter and all of those things, right? And now watch what happens. Watch what happens. He says, okay, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. I, like I said, I'm making the case that I think they're identical to Apollo's. They replied, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe on the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we've already been through this. That doesn't mean they went down in the name of Jesus. That was not the way they baptized. They baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as Jesus had taught. Because we're not modalists. We don't believe Jesus is the name of the Father, Jesus is the name of the Son, and Jesus is the name of the Holy Spirit. That's the Jesus only, right? That's wrong. We believe in the name of Jesus means in the authority of Jesus. John had a baptism and Jesus had a baptism. At a baptism. John's baptism was done a certain way. You would confess your sins, and then you would just go down. Jesus' baptism in the name of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, is to confess Jesus as Lord and the baptizer, saying the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? Okay. So then they get they get told this, and he says, to believe on the one coming after him, that's Jesus. And I give you the reference there, Acts 25 to Apollos. I think these are the same guys like that. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied, there was about 12 men in all. Do you guys see that? Okay, so number one, this ain't the Baptist book. This is the Pentecostal book. When do you all do this? Amen? They don't. Now, right here... Uh, We got to explain what tongues is again, right? Because they said, well, tongues in Acts chapter 2 was known languages for people to hear the gospel so that they might be saved, and that's the only time it was really used that way. Then they'll take the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and say, that's just a known language and somebody interpreting them. No, Bible says that nobody understands them, not even the one speaking. So it's not a known language. You know when you're speaking Spanish, and the one hearing you knows you're speaking Spanish, but these are languages no one has learned. That's why they need spiritual interpretation right? If, 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 some, if an unbeliever was there and heard you speaking in Spanish, they don't need the spiritual gift to interpret it into Spanish, uh, to English or whatever. Now, what we see here is if the main purpose of speaking in tongues was for the gospel presentation, why in the world are these boys speaking in tongues? There's only 12 of them, including Paul and, the, uh, and his travelers. Who are they preaching to? Who are they preaching to in tongues? See, tongues is not for that. Tongues has a secondary use for that, but its primary use is the evidence, the power going through the believer. And it can be at times miraculously understood or interpreted, but the primary purpose of the tongues is found in Acts 1 for the power. And that's why Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you. Is that, does that mean Paul was always just speaking in, in different languages? No. Paul said, when I pray in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And when I sing in tongues, same thing. So he understood that the spiritual tongues he was speaking was not mental preaching. Are you listening? And we see right there next to that the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, you'll know a denomination, Church of God and prophecy. There are some denominations that believe prophecy and tongues are the initial sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At this point, we're just splitting hairs, right? We're just, you know, we're looking through the New Testament trying to find what is the most consistent. And when we see throughout all of the pattern of the times the Holy Spirit is there, tongues is the one that's there in each one of them. Prophecy is lacking in one. And so, uh, but, but it's going to be right there with it. I mean, many of you can relate to this as you begin to speak in tongues, you also began to prophesy, maybe over your life, you began to speak the word ecstatically, and God was giving you utterance, it kind of goes hand in hand, so uh, we don't split hairs over that, and there's great Pentecostal denominations that have different views on how that works, and and like I said, if you're Pentecostal, we're good with you, amen, and even if you're not, we still know you're you're our brother, we're not the oneness, oneness are heretics, and that's why they want to cut everybody out as well, that's why they act that way, now with Josh Fergenstein and some of these other guys, what's that, what's the African-American guy, um, Marcus Rogers watch out for these guys because they sound like us they talk like us and they want to be a little bit more welcoming but they're still teaching the heresy of oneness they'll still wear their gear that says you know Acts 238 they'll still you know one god one name you know they'll have this gear on because they're trying to do it more subtly not as their forefathers used to do but we believe in a trinitarian expression of god and we believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone so we share that with the baptists but we share the expression of the holy spirit speaking in tongues with the pentecostal But which one is necessary for salvation? The orthodox faith. So though we have an expression with these boys that's true over the Baptists, these guys are in more trouble than the Baptists are because the expression of faith that the Baptists have is adequate for salvation. They're in heresy outside of what the Bible guarantees is salvation. Now, I'm not going to place them in hell. I'm just saying they're outside of what the Bible says is the mark of salvation. God may judge them differently um, based on each one of their own revelations. Maybe some of them misunderstood because a lot of Christians don't even understand the Trinity, right? right? But I, I, I have to warn you because they're heretics. They teach a false gospel, the oneness of God. You have to be baptized in Jesus' name literally, and then you have to speak in tongues to be saved. We believe in by grace alone through faith alone. But then we believe after a person is saved, they are to be baptized in the name of Jesus by the authority he gave with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you are to speak in tongues. So this is the Pentecostal book. Amen? Amen. So, Paul then entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, let me just say this right here. If I could make verse number eight a... a uh, an assessment for modern day preachers and give them a grade. I guarantee you, most modern day preachers would fail according to Paul's standard of being a modern, uh, a, a successful preacher. Number one, they had to be bold. Most today uh, pastors got their pants so tight they have no more testosterone, no more boldness. Come on, they don't know how to preach it. Right? Come on, they got them pants too tight. Hey, Amen. They need to. They need to man up a little bit. And then the second thing is they don't know how to argue. They don't know how to argue. They back down. You ask. Joe Losin a question in public, he backs down. You ask these boys questions in public, Carl Lentz, they back down. These men knew how to argue. Jesus knew how to argue. Now, we don't love argument. We know when to walk away. Don't cast our pearl to swine. But we need to know how to argue from logic. In the beginning was the Logos. That's where logic came from. Logic can never contradict our Bible. Bible is the foundation of all logic, amen? Our Jesus is the truth, not just spiritual truth on Sunday, but all scientific, all mathematical, and all logical truth. So we need to know how to argue and then just not like sign guys going, everybody's going to hell, I'll just stand out here and argue with you at Taste of Chicago or Mardi Gras we go. You need to argue persuasively, persuasively. That means you need to be able to go into the public square and make your point known on two minutes when they interview you on CNN. And say, oh, well, let me just start off and clarify this. I love everybody here, but I don't love everybody's behavior. Let me start by saying that. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve. I believe that. If you don't believe that, tell me where your beginning came from. You know, come on, put me on Oprah's show. Put me there. I'll get it said in two or three minutes. You get what I'm saying? I'll say it in love. I'll say it in respect. There is a hell. What do you not understand about the hell? Hell gets thrown into the lake of fire. People will be there for eternity. The only way to guarantee you don't go there is to be born again in the name of Jesus. Uh, any other questions, Oprah? Uh, will the Hindus go there? Yes. Everybody who's not born again will go there. Will the Muslims go there? How long do you want to go, Oprah? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, just what else you want to talk about? Let's go on to the next thing. Hell is for the unbeliever. And then the Bible List the kind of actions unbelievers do. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the godless, those who practice witchcraft. Okay. What other question? Let's go on. What does God think about homosexuals? He loves them just the way they are, but he loves them too much to let them stay that way. Well, they say they were born that way. Well, Jesus said, be born again his way. Is it hard? What happened to our preachers? Like I said, they got their pants too tight, amen? They tried, to, they tried to be like the world. They forgot how to preach like Paul did. Paul was bold. Paul was kind and loving, but yet he was bold, and he was able to argue and preach persuasively. And then the last thing, he knew about the kingdom of God. I believe we can have a good life now, but if this is your best life now, you're in trouble because there's a life to come in the kingdom of God that better be better than anything you've experienced here. Now, I still believe in houses and land and blessing for the disciple here. The Bible says you'll have that plus persecution, so we shouldn't think it's strange, but there, there is a coming back to the, to the way things should be, a restoration, the Bible says, of all that we've lost, and I believe that can even happen on this earth in this life. But it's not my best life, quote unquote, it, it's, it's not the best it's going to be, the The best it's going to be is when his kingdom comes on earth and his will is done on, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? So that's where we have to look at our ministry. How are we doing? As SU and Bible College students, as you guys going to school, how are you doing? Could I place you now in a confrontational situation as Paul was being placed confrontational with the Jewish people? Could I place you on Belmont and Clark with the gay community? Could I place you on a corner with the gangs? Could I bring you to the professors of Wright College? Can't go there today because they're on spring break so we'll go around here but that's where I normally go on Mondays and I, and I meet professors. Can I place you in that that, that situation. And will you speak boldly? Will you argue persuasively about the kingdom of God? Amen. So help us God. Amen. By his grace, you can, and you will get better at it as you have more practice. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So now some of these Jews, they get angry. And as the pattern has been, now they start to persecute Paul. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now just notice again, he took the disciples with them. When that is just disciples, not disciples of John, we know that means they're Christian disciples. So going back up to the first part, they were disciples of Jesus. They were already born again. They needed that expression of the Holy Spirit and the proper baptism. Just to show you how it ties in there. He moves from the synagogue now to a rented hall. And uh, let's see if we can actually go here and see where the hall of Tyranius would be. I, I would hope that this col- I mean this um, chart here would tell us. My guess is, is that it was a, a popular place to meet. there, the town hall, or just a hall rented in there somewhere. It actually doesn't have it. And I'm like I said, I'm not the best at geography. But the idea would be that the Jewish synagogue rejected Jesus and the message, and now he's going to start reaching the pagans on a neutral ground where they can come and meet with him. So that's where he goes. And once again, you notice this is a history book. This is not a book of mythology. If you've ever read mythology, especially like Hindu religion, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, etc., these are not the, the way they write. This is this is in history. Luke is a historian. The Christian faith is not built on myth. Why, why would he mention this place if it was a myth? You know, when you read I, I, or watch the movie, um, which I thank God it's not filthy. Praise God I can still watch some of these Marvel movies, but repent if it takes too much of your time though, right? Um, so I was watching the third uh, Thor, and where is he at? Where's that city? Uh, Asgard? Asgard, yeah. Now, that's how you write myth. You talk about places like that. You, you, you don't talk about literal places that people at this time could go back and look at. So Paul is literally in the history of the world. He's a historical figure. He's not a myth. He existed. Even atheists believe Jesus existed. If you ever meet somebody that says, I don't believe Jesus existed, you just met a fool. They have basically just put a stamp on their head and said, you're talking to an idiot, so be, be talk slow with me and be patient with me. So that's what literally they have just told you because even Bart Ehrman, even the most radical atheists, Atheists who don't like Christianity say it is an established fact. Even Bart Ehrman, the atheist, I I use him a lot as evidence, goes to an atheistic conference. They have a little clip of him on YouTube going, some of you guys need to stop making us look bad by saying Jesus didn't exist. He literally has to correct his own people and say, you guys are making us all look dumb here. Please stop doing that because Jesus existed. And Paul existed, real historical person. This went on for two years, longest place Paul is at. In Ephesus, two years. That's the longest time we've heard thus far. So that all the Jews who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Remember, this is considered the province of Asia. So we think of Asia being further east, but in the, uh, you know, the early church time, Asia would have been considered all into these areas. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Pentecostal book, right? Come on, somebody. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So right here, now we have a choice. Do we put this writing in the idea of historical narrative and now throw out kind of like Thomas Jefferson did with Jesus, wherever there's a miracle, and say, that can't be real. And he came up with what was called the historical Jesus. So let's take all the miracles out of Jesus and just get left with the teachings of Jesus, and now we'll get to know the real Jesus because they're just adding myth to Jesus. Is that what's happening here? Is there historical things going on? Yes, these guys are actually preaching and teaching, but just every now and then to make the story more interesting, Luke just throws in some myth. No, this is true. And this is why we believe uh, that uh, the same reason we believe this is true for them is the same reason we, we believe it's true for Jesus, is because you don't just get angry with the person that says something you don't like, especially if you're a Jew, you don't have that kind of anger they had toward Jesus unless they have the power of God with them, and now you're threatened by him. And so Jesus' miraculous powers was actually a threat to the Jewish people and increased their anger towards him, and then the blasphemy charges, right, of him claiming to be equal with the Father. And it's the same thing with the Christians. If all they were were just speaking revolutionary things, that would be one thing. Yes, they could get in trouble for that. But it's not that they're just speaking revolutionary things. Their God has more power than the gods of the Romans, and that causes jealousy to rise up in these pagans. It's actually an evidence to why the culture is changing so rapidly. It's not that they are just coming with good ideas, that the culture is changing. It's their coming in power. And remember, that's what Paul said. I came in the demonstration of power. Now let's see if that matches what the Pentecostal movement has done over the last 100 years, how we literally went from Azusa Street, from William Seymour in Los Angeles, in an old horse stable with a few hundred people, to now being the fastest growing church movement on the planet and of history over 500 million of us around the world. Is that how it grows? Does it grow just because we're good speakers or does the Pentecostal movement grow because of the power of God? almost all of you were saved in our ministry. What drew you in? Was it just Joe preaching really good on the, the, the pulpit, up here on the pulpit, uh, you know, up here on the stage? Or was it the power of God that met you at these altars in the Bible studies, right? It was the power of God. You would see the miracles. You would hear the prophecy. You would see the things. It's happening overseas. You know, it's happening with our greatest evangelists, you know, and that's exactly what it is here. And it's the evidence to why they start getting so upset, because people are getting saved by the thousands, by the by the, by the the multitudes because they're seeing this. And then we see that there's a a way that a miracle can be transferred by his clothing. Now, we have got to talk about this. Uh, Pentecostals have been known to be charlatans, right? So now we've given it to the Baptists, we've given it to the Oneness, now we got to take a little bit of inventory of our own lives. I mean, how many times have you seen this on TV? Send this in, I'll send you this miracle cloth. You know, send in this money, I'll send you a miracle cloth. Or if you sow a thousand dollar seed, you're going to get ten thousand back. All of that is what the Bible says false doctrine, false teaching. There's doing it for the love of money. This was not a scam. So, so I agree with the Baptist. If the Baptist looks at me, you know, like a John MacArthur, you know, who had a lot to say in the strange fire conference and everybody got stirred up because he was blasting a lot of Pentecostal practices, a lot of us Pentecostals are going, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. I'm against that. But I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because the Bible actually says it happened. I mean, is that not in your Bible? What are you going to do about this? They took handkerchiefs and aprons from him, and they brought it to the sick and touched them with it, and they were healed. Uh, when uh, when, When the Israelites threw upon a dead man, was it Elisha's bones, the dead man, he came to life? Elijah or Elisha? It is Elisha. Yeah, it's a lie show, right? Just double-check on that, Professor, por favor. I mean, these strange occurrences are in the Bible, but why do I believe them? Do I believe them just because I'm a superstitious person? No, because I believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God. If there is a God, everything is possible. Everything's possible. That's why when they try to make fun of us and they say, well, mountains go into a sea. Man, what do you think they're finding out now mountains are even made of? They're just molecules. We found out that molecules can be arranged in a hundred different ways. We're splitting molecules. You're telling me the God who made molecules just can't pick them up and move them? If we can move pixels in a video game creation program, if I can make in a video game program a mountain go from here to here like copy and paste, what do you think God can do with the program we call the universe? Come on, somebody. This is not too hard to believe. This is just simple math, the simple logic. God plus nothing equals everything. Come on. Do you believe in the Big Bang? Yes, I do. God said it. Bang, it happened. Come on. What else you got to know? What else you got to know? Y'all still trying to figure it out? God already said it. Nothing wrong with that. Just keep figuring it out. I got the book, though. Okay? So, so the idea is there's, there's, there's unique things. Let's not call them weird or strange, but they're unique. We don't see it as a pattern. He's not selling it. It's just a part of what's going on, just just like Peter's shadow is healing the sick. That doesn't mean we all line up to see the Pope. There's no, this is not the Roman Catholic book. There is no mention of the Pope anywhere here. uh, Peter's just one of many disciples, and if anybody's in charge, James is in Jerusalem, and then Paul's the predominantly figure in the New Testament with the, the writings of the New Testament. But it just happened to be that when Peter would walk, God would use his shadow to heal the sick. There's, there's, there's nothing more to read into that, and there's no reason we should be ashamed of that. Amen? Don't make it something it wasn't. Try to make the office of a pope and all of that. No. And then, then don't be ashamed of it. Don't be like, well, that's, I don't know if I can believe that. No, God can do it. God is able. Amen? Now, verse 13. Uh, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest... uh, we're doing this. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit said to them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who in, the, who in hell are you? Amen. Who in hell are you? That's a good message you guys want to preach. It be a little sassy, make some of the more conservative people a little upset, but, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Once again, why is, the, why is Luke including this? It's a historical narrative. And he's showing that demon possession was a real deal and that the apostles could actually see deliverance come, but not everybody could do that. And then when tried, people tried to imitate it and didn't have the authority, they would actually get beat up. And some of us who have been in deliverance ministry know what I'm talking about. man. I've seen a girls your size throw around two guys as we're coming to help them. The ushers are holding them down. We actually have one on videotape with a small guy in India. You guys can see it. I want to see it more by the way. I was just thinking about that when I was driving in. We need to go find some more demon possessed people. Amen? So will you guys go get them and go bring them in. Find the one they're tying up with chains that's naked somewhere over there, you know. I don't know. But, you know, th- this this is real. I've seen it many times. It seems like I go up and down in it sometimes. I see it all a whole lot, and then I don't see it for a while, and then I see it. It's been a little while since I, you know, I've seen one. So I think they're coming. They're coming sometime soon, you know. I feel it. But, uh, you know, I just, I just saw this one girl at a youth service. She was throwing this one guy around. Another guy tried to grab her arm. She was, she was throwing him around. She was cussing as loud as could be. It was just a normal altar time, just like how we were here, very, very just peaceful in the presence of God. Then she started saying, F this, ah, started doing all of that. And I was like, all right, let's go. I get so excited. I really do. You can ask Jared. I get so excited. I feel so much compassion for the person. I get excited. I'm like, yes, I've been waiting for this. I was married to my wife for like four years, and she had never seen it. She had only heard my stories, and I'm like, I'm so wasted. It was like four years of a dry spell. I never saw one, and then finally somebody had come to our church, went home, and said, I'm hearing demons. I'm hearing demons. I'm like, We're coming to your house right now. And then we go over there. I just started praying. He started foaming at the mouth. My one guy was holding him and all this. My wife was freaking out, and then we prayed, and he gets set free. Right? That's how it happens. So I don't need to talk to him, we have long conversations. There used to be some videos of people talking to him. What is your name? And let's have a conversation. I just try to say, Why are you there? Because I want them to confess their to be delivered. That's usually the one angle I go to, but if the demon's still being out of control, and and the demon does that to scare people, to make the demon, uh, to make the people think how strong he is, so then I'll just be like, shut up, come out in the name of Jesus, okay, amen. God can do it. These boys couldn't do it, so get you some Holy Ghost, amen. They came out naked and bleeding. That's not how you want to end your altar call, naked and bleeding, amen. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Isn't that what you hear right now on the African mission field and the different places that we go in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, India? This is this is how they hold us in high regard and the places where we meet them face-to-face over and over again the people begin to know of the Christian testimony in China and so forth. And, and I, here's what I think personally happens in America is they hide and they hide underneath disbelief. You know, people don't think they're demon-possessed so they'll go to a doctor. And I'm not saying everything uh, is a demon that makes somebody go to a doctor. I'm just saying it's just, our culture has just so, like, pushed this down and not considered it to be relevant that we don't really know what demon demonology is, okay? So uh, we just need to be sensitive to it, and we need to be led by the Spirit with the gift of discerning of spirits. So at the altar, sometimes push a little bit into their lives and say, can we have you confess this? Because that's normally when I would see it manifest is I would say, okay, like let's say they come to the altar and they say, pray for me. I looked at you know pornography or whatever. Uh, I think a great way to kind of see what's going on in their heart is to say, I rebuke you spirit of perversion. Just put a name on it. you know. Now, there may not be a little demon called perversion hanging around there, but we're just going to make sure. We're just going to make sure. Now, they may have the spirit of perversion because you can be perverted without the devil's help, okay? Uh, Cain could kill Abel all by himself because the Bible says sin was crouching at your door. Just sin. Your sin crouching at your door can make you wicked and evil. And remember, it's not just demons going to hell. People go there too because they can sin all by themselves. So even if it's not a quote-unquote spirit of perversion living there, I just like to have them called out. And, and you know, and it would just be funny because like if somebody's like walking over here and there is like a spirit of perversion and they're confessing it here, like all of a sudden that spirit over there gets slapped upside the head. You're like what's going on? Well, this church over here is rebuking you. You know, I know that sounds a little silly, but I, I, just, I just you could never go wrong beating up the devil. Uh, somebody has said to me, "Well, is everything the devil? Is the devil under every rock?" I'm like, no, but there's nothing wrong with beating him up every time you pray. So I rebuke you, Satan, come down, you know, uh, from your high place. You know, all of these kinds of things. But then again, we don't want to become like uh, like we're Star Wars or something, we do have to understand that there is also the choice of man. God doesn't force people to go to heaven, and the devil can't force people to go to hell. Choice was the gift that God gave us, and it works both ways, okay? It works both ways. All right, so the the fear comes upon the people. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. So now they're going to come confessing their sins. That's true revival. It's not just a conference. Those are all fine. It's not just a gospel uh, concert. It's, it's literal confession of sin. Culture is changing now from the inside out. And here's how we know. Watch the testimony here. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So they go somewhere public in that city and start burning their scrolls. When they calculate, this is what we know it's history, it's historical narrative. When they calculate the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is equivalent, they, they believe, $6 million. Okay? And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, I want you to understand why the riot's going to happen now. So this is revival. Now, the riot's going to happen. And the only way I can compare this to, because I've been there now twice with my kids, because my parents retired close to Orlando, uh, going to Disney World. Just imagine just how massive Disney World is. And the kingdom, uh, magical kingdom, you know, this huge, you know, castle there. All the people that work there. All the money that's brought in and out of there. Okay, now, Take it to another level, because this is literally what these temples were like in their cities. They were massive. When I was in India, I saw a god, a lowercase g god, about the size of the Statue of Liberty. This thing was huge and ugly, and and a a rich Indian businessman made it his goal to Plant these things all over India. Just like how when we drive on the highway, we sometimes see a big cross. Like when we go to New Orleans, there's a big cross there. This guy wanted to build like, like 300 foot statues of his God, this monkey face God, just nasty. But it's just like you could just see a, like a demon being behind that idea like I'm here, you know. Like the demons that get worship out of that. But but uh, here we see this this wonder of the world. This temple is in this city and these guys are renouncing their ways. So imagine now Disney World but it's not for fun for your children, it is a temple to their God, and it employs tourism, I mean, employs people through their tourism, thousands of dollars, and now people just burn $6 million with the Mickey Mouse stuff, you know, in downtown Orlando. This is throwing the city into chaos. Do you, do you get what's going to happen here? So let's not like check out of this going like, I don't know why these guys would be so upset with them. No, this is like their whole entire life. Their life is built around this quote-unquote Disney world. This massive monument, their God, their worship, okay? After all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. He's not going to leave yet. That threw me off when I was reading it because Paul shows up here in Ephesus a few moments later. But this is where he now decides it's time for him to roll out, and he'll go in in the next chapter. Passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I, will, I must visit Rome. Now, he had no idea he was going to go there in chains at this point. But later on, he does get a prophecy. He'll go there, and Agabus tries to stop him. But he goes, I have to go to Rome. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So there's the clarification. He goes, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I have to get to Rome eventually. Uh, He doesn't probably know at this point he's going to get arrested, and that's how he's going to go there. So he sends uh, Timothy and Erastus to go ahead of him, start preparing the way as he's going to finish the last part of his journey here. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That was the nickname for the Christians at that time, the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, and here's what Artemis looked like, so I'm going to use the... um, the collegiate uh, standard of research, Wikipedia. No, I'm kidding. But this is just fast and easy for you guys. But this is what Artemis looked like, this sick-looking image here, multiple breasts. All of those things hanging down are her breasts. She's a goddess of fertility, and uh, that's what he made. That's what this guy made. That's what he sold. Uh, That's what the people are worshiping as their god. So when we think about this guy, what we need to understand is that he's now losing his money because he's now, uh, they're basically burning these things along with the witchcraft uh, practice in their city. And if I can go back here, there we go. Now I'll have to open it back up. But $6 million worth of these sorcery things built around these idols are being burnt. And it's a sick thing man you know like i said with these indian gods uh, I, that's why i compare it very similar to uh, to the greek and roman culture they're just sick man they look evil i don't even know why you know but it's deception but people think the more evil it is it, it, they actually think it wards off evil and the more perverse it is the more better it is for them like being a goddess of fertility so this guy demetrius gets all upset Because, why? Because he had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together. So he's calling all these people together who make this, along with the workers and the related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. How many can say amen to that? Amen. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Clashing of the cultures. And this is where I was talking yesterday. When we think about Ellen Degenerate, I mean Ellen Degeneris, I just like to say that. When we think about Ellen the Degenerate, And we know she needs to get saved. Many people think to themselves, she's going to lose money. Nobody's going to come watch her show anymore. If she gets saved, she's going to have to divorce Portia. Boy, Portia's a hot chick, man. She's going to miss out on that. And if God doesn't change her desires, some people stay the same, so they'll have to remain single. They can't act them out now because they'll not be attracted to a man. And they know that their sexuality is now going to be limited, so they'll remain single. What a terrible life we're wishing upon Ellen. Wouldn't it be just better for her just to be the way she is? No. And that's almost what the culture is saying here, isn't it? Wouldn't it just be better that we just keep worshiping a false God that looks disgusting, that's made of of brick, just so we can have a good life? And isn't that what comes into the church quite often? Don't, don't get upset with the worship leader and he had sex, if he had sex outside of marriage, cheated on his wife or had sex with his girlfriend. Don't get mad at that. Just, just let him sing. We're happy they're here. You know, don't judge these people in the congregation. Let them work it out. Don't hold them accountable. Let them come and receive communion, consider themselves a Christian even though they're not. Because isn't that easier for them to have a better life? It's not our job to do that. I'll just let the Holy Spirit do that. See, these men suffered along with women, obviously, but they suffered for their boldness. It wasn't just Jesus is Lord and so is Caesar. No, it's Jesus is Lord and Caesar's not. It's not just Jesus is Lord and so is Diana and so and that and that was her you know uh, Greek name and so is Artemis. No, it's Jesus is Lord and this is a stupid statue. And I mean stupid in the literal sense. It's deaf and dumb. It cannot hear. It cannot act. Like the prophet said, you take part of the wood and make it into a statue you bow down to, and the other part of the wood you cook your food over. Folly, foolishness. But you see, now it's going to come at a cost, isn't it? Because there are some people who want to be dumb on purpose now. They want to walk in the way of folly. They don't want to change. Even while they were stoning Stephen, and they saw him start to shine as an angel. The Jewish people saw this. He started; His face started to shine. That made them want to shout louder, cover their ears, and stone him faster. They crucified our Jesus. It's not called Good Friday because they took our Jesus into Jerusalem, hoisted him up, and said, He's a jolly good fellow. He's a, no, it's called Good Friday because it was good for sinners that the righteous Son of God died a gruesome death. They didn't, they didn't honor him. They didn't honor our prophets. They killed him. They threw Jeremiah down in a pit. This is a serious gospel, amen? And that's why I wear the bracelet to remind me of the underground church that I always offer to the church for free. And if any of you guys ever want one, I'll give it to you for free. I have a couple in the office. Because still our brothers and sisters around the world are being treated like this. We don't want to stop worshiping Allah. We don't want to stop uh, stop praying five times a day towards Mecca because we live here. We live in a certain part of the Middle East where it's our tradition. Our family makes money off the Muslim faith. We sell prayer rugs. We sell Qurans. We sell tourism to the different places where Muhammad traveled. We don't want to give that up. We would rather kill you and shut you down than give that up. So that's what happened. The riot breaks out. When they heard this, the people, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. Uh, the people seized Gaius and Articus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Do you guys know what we saw with that theater? Thousands of people. Thousands. They rushed them in there. They're going to kill them. They're going to mock them. They're going to they're do everything they can to them just like we were put into the gladiator arenas eventually. Not yet. The Romans were still dealing with us. But by about uh, 60 A.D., Paul gets beheaded by Nero, and Nero becomes a crazy uh, emperor, and we start to die until uh, the Edict of Milan in 313. They seize Gaius, Articus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rush into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. So Paul's bold. He's like, "Man, I'll go." And they're like, "No, I man, you're just probably gonna, you know, die right here." It's okay. It's time to go. So there's time to be wise. Uh, there's time to be harmless as a dove and as wise as a serpent. There's just, you know, things they had to do. They weren't cowards. Never think they were cowards. Paul was willing to go, but they were saying, "For the sake of the message, Paul, you just need to keep moving. Our brothers are already there. They'll represent us." So even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul. Paul sent him a message begging him, "Don't venture into this theater, Paul. Don't go there. It's not your time." The assembly wasn't confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. This is Luke's sense of humor. Remember when he talked about the Mars Hill? He said all they do is just talk about ideas. Here, here he says another joke right here. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. You got to read the Bible to understand the Bible. Amen. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instruction to him. So the Jews are there as well. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. So this is where I'm not sure what really happened, and I don't think the commentators can be either. Is Alexander a convert from Judaism, and the Jews want the Christians to have a good... um, a good representation because they know it's going to affect them negatively now because they've been starting to get mistreated or is this a non-Christian Jew that the Jews are now trying to help them just because they don't want to get mistreated so we don't know in their relationship to Christianity but the bottom line is the Jews are trying to help right now because they know they're in trouble too and eventually we know they get their temple destroyed in 70 AD so when the Christian persecution breaks out in around 60 from the Romans they get destroyed in 70 AD and their persecution had already started from before because they were getting exiled out of Rome in the 50s So it's just a mess for both of those groups, right? So at this point, it seems like they're trying to help. He motioned for silence, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? And this is probably like a meteorite that they had and they worshiped. And still today, the black stone at the Kaaba for the Muslims is a meteorite and they worship. That's what they kiss the black stone. It is just crazy people still believe that today. And then Muslims want to call Christians idol worshipers because we have a cross. Uh, my friends, they don't even know what they're talking about. Our cross is not something we worship. Uh, Catholics may, but it's not what Protestants worship. It's just a representation of our Jesus. They actually worship the black stone. They pray towards that black stone in Mecca five times a day. I don't pray towards the cross. Are you listening? Okay? Amen. A little land, yep. Amen. Black Hebrew Israelites got a little sun, son today. Hinduism got a little sun, sun. And then Muslims took a little bit and the Roman Catholics. Praise God. Welcome to a church that's bold. Amen? Or to a Bible college here. So they um, so he's, they, he said, we, we know about all this. Verse 36. Therefore, these facts are undeniable. You ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Now I think that they had blasphemed the goddess by saying she was no god because it says in Demetrius' accusation, Paul says that these gods are no gods at all. So what I think is happening here is the city clerk doesn't know the whole story, and he's just like, whatever they've done, it's not to the extent you're treating them as. So I think he says a misstatement. So the Bible contains errors. It's just the Bible's not an error because it's an error. It just records errors, amen? The Bible records sin doesn't mean the Bible sin, right? So I believe this is an error on behalf of this clerk because he's just thrown into a situation he doesn't know much of. But I did put a helpful link here that I think even our professor would want to learn, and, and some of you like to go deep. Somebody say deep. There has always been, and I've been taught it as well, that both Corinth and Ephesus had temple prostitution. And this was very popular at this at this time. There is now research coming out that this was an over-exaggerated claim. So I actually put the link there to the scholarly article that they're now saying this was actually 600 years prior in Corinth and Ephesus in the times when the Greeks ruled where this guy, I believe the Greek historian's name is Strabo. And then the more modern uh, historians tried to take it and stretch it into biblical time periods. Though prostitution was legal or Homosexuality, pedophilia, all that was around at that time the idea, as I've been saying here in chapel, that they would actually go and worship while having temple prostitutes, that may not have been happening in this time. They were still wicked. They still did, uh, you know, uh, parties like Mardi Gras, but it may not have been, quote unquote, temple prostitution. And so I put that under blaspheme our God, because why tell a lie about their God? Amen? So we don't need to tell lies to get the truth across. Sometimes we do that, right? When uh, We're not proud of it, but sometimes I know that when students are trying to Evangelize, and you're trying to get into debates, sometimes you tell something that you're not sure of and you want to make it look good. Don't do that. I would rather you say, I don't know. Let me get back to you and let me see the research on that. And if things have been passed around in church, don't take it just because a good preacher said it. Good preachers like me have been wrong. And that's why I'm showing that to you. And that's why we come to Bible College. And now I'm preaching moving forward. I'll make sure to correct that. Uh, So there's a lot of things like that that Christians believe. And we got to make sure that we move them away from uh, the errors closer to the truth. Because I'm just want the truth. Amen. So I put that article there if you want to read it. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils, they can go press charges. So, guys, let's not cause a riot. Let's do this the right way. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in legal assembly because the Romans did have a legal system, okay? That's why they could control so much land. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. So they didn't want to get in trouble from the Roman army and from the Roman governors and the leaders from Caesar's Rome. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. So that's why I said even though he was wrong, he kind of had the basic idea. There's no reason to do this. Even if Paul was using his speech to speak against them, he wasn't trying to riot against them. It's just people were changing their faith. Okay, But uh, it was illegal to blaspheme their gods, and we know Timothy dies Uh, for blasphemy Timothy dies at the parade of one of the gods and he says it's not a god and the church history tells us as an old man they drag him through the city they beat him and they kill him because that became when that's when they were less tolerant of us verse 41 in closing after he had said this he dismissed the assembly so that is chapter um, 19 We are in Ephesus. We will see after this that he will move on now to the rest of northern part of Asia. And just to give you the timeline of where we are at, we are somewhere right around... right around here at uh, 53 to 55, and then at 57, he gets arrested in Jerusalem, which is going to happen in chapter 21. So the next chapter, we hear a few more things about his journey, and then chapter 21, he gets arrested, all the way into chapter 28, we'll see about the the Roman imprisonment, how they try to kill him, uh, the shipwreck, and then uh, the book of Acts ends with him in jail, and as I shared with you before, I believe that's because, you know, we don't know, but the best guess we have to why... Acts was ever written is this is Paul's defense in jail of his Christian faith to the Roman government. This is what Christianity is, and he's trying to persuade them. We know this happens later on in church history with the writings of Justin Martyr and others writing directly to Roman officials trying to go against their charges so that they don't keep getting murdered by them. One of the charges that the Romans made against us was that we were atheists, and the reason was is because we only believed in one God. To them, it's like, you're just an atheist. You don't believe in God. Uh, because they were used to people believing in all the gods. And another charge they made against us is they believed we were cannibals because we said in communion that we ate the flesh and blood of Jesus. They, they put a, a false reputation among the people that we were killing our own people and eating them and, and, and making that like a, a, a sacrifice in some sense. Uh, so those were some of the rumors that we had. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the book of Acts, the Pentecostal handbook. Lord, it's a weighty uh, chapter that we went through, a lot of information. But, Lord, let it not just be information, but let it be revelation that brings transformation so that salvation can come to the nations. May we live it out as they did, even then, to see revival, God. And when riots come, Lord, let us be courageous and faithful to keep preaching. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus.